does it mean to shape the world around you? Does it mean that your personal influence can have a direct effect on you and the people around you? Does it mean that the world is what you make of it? As in, your reactions to your external stimuli create the world you live in. These are some of the ideas brought upon due to the game Dandara. It's a unique view on world building and game design. We are Reflections on Gaming, and we want you to join us as we discuss one of the most interesting games that we have had the fortune of playing recently. I'm Weston. And I'm Jordan. This week we're going to be diving into Dandara, uh, the game mechanics, the world building, and all those things, and discussing kind of what makes this game unique. Uh, we're not going to claim that this is necessarily the best game ever made, or the longest, or anything like that, but this game has the fortune of being just an incredibly unique experience, both in how you actually play the game, and just the world um, that is that it, that it builds for itself. Before we get into the game proper, uh, let's just have a little bit of backstory on the development of it, uh, and it's just super, super brief who made it, and um, how that ties into kind of why this is such a unique experience. So Dandara was made by Long Hat Studios. And Long Hat Studios is a Brazilian-based uh, game development company. And it's really interesting. Um, I had no idea that they were Brazilian. But when you start getting into the game and you start looking into kind of the backstory and what the game is actually uh, about, like the story of it, um, it's actually really important that it's a Brazilian uh, game dev, that it like that helps explain a lot of kind of what's going on in the story and kind of the deeper meaning behind the game that it's not because the, the game is pretty vague in the way it tells its story. Essentially, the entire game is an allusion to a real life conflict and a real life person uh, that these things are based on. Obviously, it's not one-to-one. -one. This is a very high fantasy, high concept game, um, but doing a little bit of research uh, before delving into kind of our discussion of this game, we learned that, you know, these events are roughly based on some real-world events, uh, and that's very interesting. And it's one of those things that, as an American especially, uh, but just someone from um, a country where a lot of games are developed there, you forget that history is a lot more than just recent history, a lot more than just the history that you learn. Um, the events that take place in this game, um, the, the basis for them are from Brazilian history and some big things that happened for them that they learned about. And it's just not something that you tend to learn in the U.S. And I imagine things that you don't learn in most other countries. Uh, because most countries try to teach you about world history as a whole and your country's history much more recently. Um, so being able to take those ideas, the ideals that crop up in those conflicts and those histories really lends itself to creating a, a completely different world design than what other countries might be used to. Uh, if you are someone who's ever played a Japanese role-playing game, um, something like Persona, you know that the way that the game plays out is drastically different than a Western-style RPG like Skyrim. And that's because of cultural differences, historical differences, the difference in literature that you grow up with, and just so many things 
uh, in Brazil, uh, there's a lot of people that have been uh, managing to kind of develop games there, but this is the first one that just really feels like it could not have been made anywhere else, at least in the mainstream. Yeah, no, for sure. The, the actual description of the story on the Steam page is, in a bizarre universe where the oppressed are on the brink of oblivion, Dandara has awoken to reshape the world. And you read that and you're like, wow, that's that's really interesting. I can't wait to play this game and see how much more fleshed out that gets. It doesn't. It doesn't really get more fleshed out than that. That's pretty much uh, you get some tidbits as you go through. You see people's kind of salt bodies like the the oppressed salt bodies kind of floating and you can collect them to get uh, some in-game currency. You can look at a couple of things that are twinkling on the screen to get to like read a little passage from a book or just make an observation of a thing in like a decrepit museum but nothing really ties it together and there is no central narrative to the to the game um well there is a central narrative to the game it's just that that central narrative is very tenuous right um before we get too too into the details of actually how you play the game and uh what makes that interesting um let's talk about the story of the game uh, and then we'll talk about the kind of genre that this game takes place in, and then the more specific aspects of what makes this game uh, a part of that genre. So the story, um, this is, as I mentioned before, a high fantasy, kind of high concept game. This is not set in any kind of world that anyone is used to. Um, uh, essentially, the world that this game takes place in, uh, I don't believe it ever is given a name. But essentially, this is a universe where everything is created from a substance called salt. Uh, and the salt is white, and it's, it's kind of granular, so it may very well be actual salt, uh, referencing kind of the salt of life idea. But in this game world, the salt just makes up everything. Everyone and everything is a form of salt. And the main character, Dandara, has been created by the essence of salt. Essentially, the world has created a warrior to defend itself. Uh, and the reason it's done this is because while the world uh, was flourishing, people were creating things out of salt, they were creating technology to utilize salt, they were doing all these fantastic things, but then an evil presence came in, um, and this evil presence has created an army for itself, trying to essentially reshape the world and use the salt uh, just for its own motivation, just for what it wants. And this is generally detrimental to everyone else, as well as apparently uh, abhorrent to the world itself, which is why the world, the salt, has created a warrior, a champion, to defend itself. Uh, and so you are born from the salt, you begin the game. Uh, and you just have to traverse through and defend the world from this evil. Um, from there, the story kind of kind of takes a backseat. I, I, I'll be honest and say that um, neither of us 100% completed this game. We did finish it, uh, and I got a majority of the items in it, um, but I didn't look you know, into figuring out the NPCs and, and how to get into any of the deep lore stuff. And that's mostly because the NPCs that you do 
meet. Uh, you get like one line of dialogue from them. From them, it's fairly esoteric. I just didn't capture my imagination or my interest. Uh, but in the entire game, I believe there's only four characters. One of them being Dandara herself, who <laughs> does not speak. Uh, doesn't doesn't really interact with anything. She's just kind of there as a as a player totem. Uh, two of the characters are just some random NPCs that are around. Uh, one is the world that kind of just says, hey, I'm, I made you defend me. And the last one is the final boss, who is the main evil presence that's like the antithesis of Salt. Right. All of the, you know, like Jordan said, the, the story is not the most engaging thing about this game, which is why we're talking about it first and not later on. Um, because the gameplay really is the most, you know, important part and the thing we're going to spend most of this podcast talking about. But the NPCs, honestly, most of the time, just serve as um, narrative tools to give you a new ability or just kind of point you in the right direction without too much exposition behind it. Trying to make it a diegetic experience, which has its pros and cons. Um as I mentioned before, this this isn't a huge game, and this isn't necessarily the best game ever. It's just very unique, uh, and it is a worthwhile experience, but it has its drawbacks, and one of those drawbacks, in my opinion, is the fact that the story feels so loose and, and not really concrete, which may be what the developers were going for. Um, there's a lot of games, like Dark Souls, that feel like the story is loose and decoupled and, and difficult to understand, but there are people who dedicate a lot of time and effort to kind of picking out those granular details and linking everything together. Um, Dandara is not Dark Souls. It does not do that. There are not item descriptions and all these things that you could look into and learn more about. It's just not present. Uh, and so if you're someone who likes gameplay over... over um, story then you won't mind if you're someone who is really really interested in a solid story and the gameplay you don't care what it is as long as the story is good might be something that you want to skip out on yeah but so from all this you might be wondering why the heck are you guys talking about this game <laughs> like why are you talking about it you're just crapping on the story but we're the reason we're talking about dandara is because it falls pretty solidly into the genre of Metroidvania, and it is one of the most interesting game... It's one of the most interesting Metroidvanias I've ever played, gameplay-wise, which is why we really want to talk about it. But before we talk about Dandara specifically, let's talk a little bit about what Metroidvanias are and what the defining characteristics of them are. Jordan's played a lot more than me, so I'm going to let him... What would you say are the defining characteristics of, of every good Metroidvania? The defining characteristics of a good Metroidvania um, are probably going to be different for different people because Metroidvanias, especially now they've kind of had a resurgence, uh, people have picked out different aspects that they, that they like the most. But I would say that probably one core thing that needs to exist in a Metroidvania, if you want it to really be a true Metroidvania, is the idea of becoming lost and the reason for this is because in many video games 
um, they are either linear or they are open world. In a linear game, uh, you cannot become lost because you are constantly being railroaded into the correct forward location. Um, you know, you know exactly where you need to go in a level, and between levels, it's a cutscene or a load menu or whatever. There really isn't much decision making. In an open world, you can get lost, but not the kind of lost where you don't know where you are. The kind of lost where you're just exploring and you're lost in the game in the game world. It doesn't matter where you are. It doesn't matter where you are. Right. The the kind of lost I'm talking about in Metroidvania is the kind of lost where you don't know where you are, you don't know where you came from, and you don't know where to go. Now, if you've never played a Metroidvania, that probably sounds terrible to you. Uh, but a good Metroidvania builds on this idea of being lost in a way where it is a cathartic kind of lost. It's not the kind of lost that gives you anxiety. It's the kind of lost um, closer to an open world, but just a, a very different kind of experience where you don't know where you are or where to go, but you know you have the skills needed to get yourself out of any situation. I think for, to give an example of this in Dandara, uh, without getting too much into how it controls, suffice to say that when you're moving around, the rooms will change directions. The, your orientation will be constantly changing depending on how you're going into rooms. And so even once you have the map, which I was constantly referring to, sometimes you still have no idea which way is which because the room spun as soon as you entered in it and maybe you got distracted and didn't see. But the thing is that there's always more ways to go. And really the trick is just to be patient and be okay with being lost because you say, all right, well, I'll just try this left path and I'll take it to however far it goes. And once you get to a place where you don't have the ability or the skill to get past, you say, all right, I'll backtrack and, and try a different way. And there are obviously better ways, you know, there's better, there's, there's more efficient ways and less efficient ways to do this. But if you have enough patience, um, like me, I'm not very good at traversing Metroidvanias in general, but I always eventually find the right path to go by just looking around and exploring. And if you don't let it kind of, if you go into a Metroidvania expecting that experience, you can avoid the annoyance that could potentially uh, come with it. And if that doesn't sound like something you like, you know, it might just not be for you, which is totally okay. Yeah, not every game is for everyone, but metroidvanias the uh the terminology metroidvania comes from metroid and castlevania which were the two first games that really implemented this design philosophy and the design design philosophy essentially boils down to you create a large map slash world that is interconnected uh very uh intricate but you lock off portions with keys however Rather than these keys being literal keys and locked doors, good metroidvanias make the keys abilities, and the locks your inability to advance without higher technical skill or a new ability that your player needs to learn. Um, for example, in Metroid, you can obtain the Morph Ball, you the Morph Ball Bomb, the High Jump, 
the wave beam, the ice beam, missiles, the scan visor, all these different abilities. And each one increases your mobility by giving you um, access to, to movement mechanics that were not possible before. Right, you can fit through small spaces. You can reach a ledge that was too high. You can open a door that's a, that was a color that corresponds to a new beam. There's, you know, countless ways that they do this throughout all the different Metroid and Castlevania games to make it interesting each time. What makes a Metroidvania truly shine, though, is in certain circumstances, rather than having a locking key um, directly tied to an ability, you tie it to player skill. Uh, one great example of this in a more recent game is in Bloodstained. Um, Symphony of the Night? No, that's no? Castlevania Symphony. Oh, that's Castlevania. <laughs> uh, Bloodstained, I forget the subtext of it, but uh, it was made by Ko Koji Igarashi. Uh, it was his most recent project. Uh, and in the game, there is a part where there are several lanterns stacked on each other. And it looks kind of out of place. But an ordinary player will look at it and be like, well, obviously I need a double jump or some ability to fly or something, and I just don't have it yet. And in truth, there is an ability that you'll get later on that will allow you to bypass this puzzle. And uh, that's because this is a much later zone that you shouldn't be entering too early. However, as soon as you start the game, you have the ability to dive kick. And dive kicking lanterns gives you the ability to jump and dive kick again. So from the very get-go of this game, you can jump up this ladder of lanterns with a high enough skill to be able to bypass a whole bunch of areas and move forward. Um, it's super interesting because your first time playing, you won't do this. Mm -hmm. You'll go through the regular order of areas that you're supposed to, uh, and, you know, everything is great, but on repeat playthroughs, your enti the entire scope of how you can play the game and which way you go changes because you've learned new techniques that you didn't have before. Metroid had this, Castlevania had this. It's a fantastic technique um, that unfortunately Dandara does not utilize, uh, but it's something that I felt needed a shout out here anyway to kind of entice people and and help you understand why Metroidvanias are so popular and why they've had a resurgence recently. Now, I just said that the story of Dandar wasn't great, and it's not a particularly fantastic Metroidvania. So the question is going to pop up again, why are you talking about this? And it is because of the way the world is crafted and the way you traverse the world. As mentioned before, the world literally shapes and shifts around you as you play the game. And now we'll explain a little bit into how that actually works and how this is such an interesting way to play a game. I'm surprised it works uh, as well as it does. Totally. So let me throw a hypothetical out there. You know how in most games you can walk or drive or really just move in a straight line? At any time. Dandara, you, you can't do that. Well, you move in straight lines, kind of. But you can only jump. You can literally only jump from surface to surface. What do I mean by that? The whole world, we've been talking about how salt is kind of the essence of this world. Salt has shaped this world. Dandara was formed 
from the salt. All across the game world, there is just giant patches of salt. Well, some are giant, some are teeny tiny, and you are essentially encapsulated on all sides by walls in almost every single area of this game. The catch is, all these walls have patches of salt on them. You, as Dandara, as a person created from this salt, you can't stand on anything that isn't covered in salt. So, instead of actually walking on the salt, you can aim with your analog stick and it'll kind of show up. If you've ever, if you've ever played like <laughs> fairy bubbles on Neopets or any of those kind of where you shoot a bubble into to, to match colors to like destroy bubbles on any of those mobile games. It's exactly like that, where you can aim Dandara in kind of like a 180 degree little half circle. And if at any point the line meets another surface with salt, you can jump to it. And so the whole game is this way. You never move any other way than jumping from surface to surface to surface to surface, from salt pile to salt pile to salt pile. The only exception to this is if you take damage, at which point Dandara will float into the air and you have a 360 degree uh, options of where to where to send Dandara, which is just a little bit of... Um, I, I think it's pretty good game design. It just gives you a little more flexibility if you're kind of surrounded by enemies, that when you take damage, you have a method of escaping from it. Yeah, the way that you traverse this game world is really interesting because when you start, uh, you're likely going to be moving very slowly because you don't quite understand what the rules are, how far you can jump, and it's just... You kind of have to treat, train your brain to think about movement in a new way. But by the end of the game, and this isn't, this isn't a super long game, you can finish it in three or four hours, um, you will be shifting through these levels so fast that um, other people watching you will not understand how you're getting to where you want to go because you'll be jumping just so quickly. And part of it is because the actual gameplay mechanics are very solidly designed and it kind of snaps you to logical locations. But also part of it is your brain is just going to get trained in such a way where you're going to be able to make these quick decisions just like that. Um, now, in addition to the movement mechanics, there's also combat mechanics. And that essentially sums up the entire game. You can move and you can shoot things. <laughs> um, but the way that you attack uh, is also very interesting. Um, you can attack in a 360 degree angle, just like you can jump in, depending on where you're at. Uh, but you can't do physical attacks. You essentially form salt into your palm and fire it out in front of you. I believe when you start the game, you start with three salt missiles coming out of your hand uh, a relatively short distance uh, and this is fairly effective it, it works out pretty well because you can essentially jump onto one side of the screen and attack on the other side of the screen but as you develop your gameplay skills and as you progress the story uh, you will start being thrown in more and more difficult combat encounters where no you don't get to just attack them from the other side of the screen. You have to get right up next to them. Uh, th this way the game works really forces you in all of its aspects to think differently and play differently. Uh, and it's really surprising, uh, at least for me, how quickly I grasped 
how to play the game and how to move forward. Uh, and another nice thing is that most of the game mechanics are multifaceted. Uh, for example, there are a couple of platforms that you can jump onto that um, after you jump onto them, they can move. But the only way to move is by attacking in the proper direction. Some of them slide, and so you have to charge up your attack, and that charge will propel you in the opposite direction. Others are rotating 360 degrees, and to get it to actively rotate the direction you want, you have to fire off a bolt, bolt in that direction. Uh, and it's very interesting. I always love it when they tie mechanics together, uh, because when they're separate, it just feels bloated, and it's just like, oh, they threw in an extra thing. But when they're tied together, it's like, oh, it, it feels like this world has been created with this in mind. Yeah, no, for sure. I, I definitely agree with that. I think it is, you know, as you as you progress further and further in the game, they start mashing more and more of these concepts together. And like you said, it's pretty incredible how quickly your brain. Obviously, this is going to depend on your skill level and how familiar you are with video games. But in general, for somebody who is pretty familiar with video games, your brain will be able to figure out exactly which direction you need to be shooting in to hit an enemy that's moving. You get really good at intercepting people. You know exactly where to shoot and how to shoot and where to jump to get onto a moving platform the right way. And in the beginning of the game, it's honestly a struggle to jump between two walls that are just parallel to each other. Because you jump and then you're like, oh no, I'm pointing the analog stick in the wrong way. I have to, you know, redirect down. And that happens a couple times. And eventually, by the end of the game, you're just tapping X furiously to just jump from wall to wall to wall to wall, and you're charging up and you're hitting enemies all while jumping from wall to wall to wall to avoid their attacks. Um, and, and let's be clear that you have to develop this kind of skill, because as the game progresses, it gets much more difficult. The types of enemies, the number of enemies, uh, what they're doing to you. There's one room in particular I remember that had um, just a bunch of freely rotating circular platforms that you could jump on and the majority of them had enemies on them and there was two enemies at the end of the level that would send essentially heat-seeking missiles at you so you have to be moving and fighting just incredibly quickly if you have any chance of surviving now on the bright side this specific room is not uh, needed to be cleared to finish the game uh, it's just for some upgrades that you can get but the fact of the matter is, you need to get very skilled at this game if you expect to finish it. Uh, so with that, like we said, we, that's essentially the entire gameplay of the game. Let's get a little bit more um, technical in talking about the actual abilities and upgrades that you're going to get. We'll start with the abilities because those are the Metroidvania um, aspects that really open up the game world start the game all you can do is jump and shoot these added abilities increase what you can do the very first upgrade you get is a special missile upgrade that is an attack and it allows you to destroy certain blocks the johnny b missiles i gotta say these are my this is my favorite upgrade in the whole game weapon weapon wise um there are a couple other weapons you get throughout the game that we'll talk about but these are the ones I use by far the most. Um, you have kind of this salt essence that determines how much you're able to use these missiles. And like Jordan said, they're not just for combat, though they are really nice for combat because they are 
fast, explosive, and way, way more powerful than your normal salt blast. Uh, they're also used to unlock new areas because they have the capacity to destroy certain walls that blocked you off before. Uh, and this is pretty close to the very beginning of the game. So honestly, th this mechanic of destroying walls doesn't come up that much throughout the game, and it's much more of a weapon-focused thing. Um, but it was good for them to at least give it that capability to guide you to get the missiles first without, you know, you can't bypass them. You can't skip the missiles and then not have that super useful weapon for the rest of the game. In an ideal Metroidvania, those locks and keys continue to be consistent. Uh, once you unlock the one, the one area that you need, they shouldn't just disappear. In Dandara, they essentially do. But... It's not about how good of a Metroidvania it is. It's about how interesting it is to play. Um, so with those missiles, it's a pretty standard upgrade. Most games with weapons give you multiple weapons and one that's explosive and longer range, easier to utilize, but limited ammo makes a lot of sense. Uh, the next ability you obtain is a special long jump ability. This one is interesting because it does crop up several times throughout the game, but mostly as a return platform rather than an advancement platform. And it's also incredibly limited because you can only utilize it in predetermined locations. Essentially, uh, you will land on a piece of salt that has this cool-looking <coughs> green totem on it, and you can jump as far as you need to. Uh, than you couldn't before. But it's usually, it's honestly usually just between two of these totem platforms. They're usually in predetermined locations. They're always in predetermined locations. I mean, yeah. Um, yeah, it's it's kind of interesting. It's nice early in the game because it does give you a way to travel back to earlier areas a lot faster. But at a certain point, it basically becomes completely obsolete other than when you absolutely have to use it. Like, it's no longer useful to return to early areas because you get a way, way faster way to do it anyway. Well, it's it's nice because it lets you, throughout the game, um, traverse certain sections quickly. For mm -hmm. example, there's many side sections that lead to treasures and upgrades where you have to go through a complex platforming challenge to get it. And then just hop on one of these platforms and go back. There's no big rigmarole that you need to deal with. Right. However, this is the most locking key of any of your abilities. No, it's probably the second most locking key. Actually, you know what? Most of the abilities you get in this game <laughs> are locking key in that they are useful for one thing and one thing only, and they don't actually increase your mobility or technical prowess. Right, they don't change the game mechanics. They just arbitrarily turn something on and that's yeah. super true with the next one uh which is there is this um entire area that's all yellow and you can see all these skulls dotted all throughout the location and you're like what are these skulls for well when you get to the end of this location the map literally looks like a skull and you get this item that just activates skull totems that's all it does their eyes light up and whatever they were supposed to do they start doing sometimes this means that platforms move sometimes it means they rotate sometimes it means they fire laser beams because i guess that's what skulls do <laughs> uh and it's nice to an extent because they kind of add this idea of sand into this world of salt 
uh, because all the skulls are activated and and essentially you're uh, allowing the flow of sand uh, in these machines. Uh, so it, it's very nice aesthetically. Uh, it's very interesting looking, but it is literally you get a key that when you get close enough to these skulls, they turn on. That's actually really interesting that you mentioned that the uh, that they shoot lasers and some of them like have sand fall through tubes every once in a while. Um, I hadn't really thought about it, but this is one of the only upgrades in this game and in any Metroidvania I can think of where, yeah, it un like this is an ability you need to progress and it makes platforms move and make it easier to get from area to area, but it also punishes you. Like, it activates a lot more traps and makes certain areas way, way more deadly than it would be had you not received this, this item. Um, well, essentially going to pick it up there is no obstacles. You just go, and you're railroaded. There, Once you get into this area, there's no way out. You just have to move forward, not in a straight line, but essentially a straight line because there, you can't go back and you can't make any other decisions. Right, there's usually only one door that's actually accessible. But as soon as you get this ability, the entire area opens up. But now, in addition to it being open, you're going to die a whole bunch of times because <laughs> yeah. everything is trying to kill you. Uh -huh. I think more interestingly, something I hadn't thought about before, in almost every Metroidvania, whatever ability you unlock is specifically for the character in increasing their capabilities. This, while technically they say it is for your character, is actually modifying the world around your character. Mm -hmm. Like, all it does is now these skull symbols are active, which I think could have been extremely interesting in its implementation and implications, but unfortunately it turned just into kind of a lock and key kind of Right. Um, and the same, the next one is also that same way. Uh, later on in a... I will say right now, since, we're talk since we've kind of mentioned it already, each area in the map has a specific color on the map that it's associated with, which is really nice for a Metroidvania. You know, it's pretty standard in Metroidvanias, but it's nice because it allows you to know, you know, oh, I went through this door and I went back to the green area um, and I'm in the purple area right now and I can't get any further in the purple area. So I need to find something that is is new in this area to help me keep going, um, which is just, you know, good design. Nice, helps you be a little less confused about what's going on. In the purple area, you'll start traversing and you'll see that there are these platforms that look a lot like other platforms you've been on where if you shoot, they'll flip around. But no matter what you do, no matter how much you shoot them, no matter how much you jump on them, they won't move. Nothing happens and you are stuck uh, going in, in, again, one direction. And in this purple area, for a while, it's pretty much you can only go one way. Eventually, you'll make it to the end of the area and you'll get another item similar to the skull, but instead of automatically activating the platforms, they allow you to land on them and press X to flip 180 degrees and be in a new area on the other side of the platform. Uh, which is the same thing. You could look at it the same way as like, well, you could say Dandara has this new ability to flip around, or you could say, no, these, these platforms are now unlocked, you've revived the world a little bit, you've now you know, liberated a part of the world that's been oppressed by the Golden Impression or whatever. Yeah, I, and uh, the final ability that you unlock probably also could fall into the same camp. Um, 
I, I believe Dandara took a little bit of inspiration um, from Dark Souls in its difficulty curve as well as its checkpointing system um, because where you stop at, there are literal bonfires. When you die, you leave a corpse behind that has all of your accumulated salt. Uh, salt is used for a lot of things in this game. There's a specific kind of salt for your abilities, a specific kind of salt for your um, currency, and the world is made of salt, and you're salt, and I'm salt, and now all I can see is salt. All I taste <laughs> is salt. <laughs> uh, but at, at the end of the day, uh, it makes sense when you're playing the game. Um, anyway, at these campsites, in addition to the quote-unquote bonfire, there's also a tent. Uh, and after you unlock the final ability that you get in the game, uh, you can start teleporting between these sites. Technically, you could say this is an ability that your character has, but it seems to me more along the lines of now your checkpoints have been upgraded, uh, similar to, in fact, Dark Souls, where you get the Lord Vessel and suddenly you can teleport between specified bonfires. To just finish the... Uh, is there more you want to say about that? Uh, not about that specifically. Okay, cool. So... Just to finish off kind of the gameplay mechanics, like Jordan said, you have salt as currency, and at each of these campsites, you can upgrade uh, certain things. You can upgrade how much health Dandara has. You can upgrade how much salt essence you have, which is kind of like your mana, essentially, what you can use for your missiles and other abilities. Um, you also have health vials that you can take to, to up your health, and you can increase how many of those you have and also how many hearts they heal. At the upgrade points, you can only increase their efficiency. Right. You can find additional ones around the world to increase how many times you can use them. And same thing, you get salt essence infusions. Um, you'll find them around the world to increase how many times you can use it before resting at a campsite. And at the campsite, you can alter how much salt essence you gain from using it. Uh, so pretty basic stuff for, for you know, Dark Souls-esque metroidvania type games where if you run out you don't want to have to backtrack all the way back to your checkpoint to fill back up so they give you some some things to reduce the difficulty curve a little bit to give you a chance if you're getting creamed in a fight or if you've used up all of your abilities on a hard enemy the game isn't particularly difficult uh, but it does sometimes become frustrating just because there are uh, certain enemies that are incredibly difficult to fight until you understand um, most enemies are a puzzle rather than a skill block, but when they move very quickly, you may not understand them. Anyway, uh, before getting into that kind of stuff, let's just finish up talking about what you can upgrade. Metroidvanias generally have lots and lots of upgrades and secrets that you can um, get into, and Dandara luckily has a lot of this. Uh, the upgrades that you can get are different kinds of uh, alternate weapons, one is this blue sphere that kind of sticks and does consistent damage. One is a yellow laser that you throw at a wall and it fires um, directly opposite where you fired it. Uh, one is, um, what is it, like a slower moving homing missile? I don't know that I got that. Uh, well, there's a bunch of different weapons you can get. You can increase uh, how many health vials you have, how many salt vials you have. And one of the coolest ones that apparently I got all of and, and Weston did not when we played the <laughs> I game. I didn't get any of them. <laughs> you can upgrade your weapon and increase how many salt missiles come out of your standard attack. 
So by the end of the game, I had like seven of these things shooting out of my hand instead of three. So I was a powerhouse. I could do a normal attack and kill just about any enemy. And it was fantastic. <laughs> I don't know how I missed all these. Having, having beaten the game, I'm sure you were supposed to find like at least one because the final boss is quite difficult <laughs> if you haven't found any of them. But I did it. I did it anyway. So yeah, it was funny. We, I was watching him fight the final boss and I'm like, I don't remember this guy being very tough. And then, you know, five deaths later, I'm like, maybe it was because I was really overpowered. <laughs> uh, in any case, the, the gameplay of this uh, is interesting because in talking about and discussing the actual game and going through it, uh, there are some poor design decisions. There are some things that aren't necessarily bad, but not great for a Metroidvania and just uninteresting. Yet, when I think of playing the game, I still think that it's a, an incredibly inventive game because the core gameplay, the way you traverse the world and attack, and all of that is just so interesting and so unique that I don't really mind that the rest of it is so uninspired. Yeah, no, I think it's one of those games, I'm not going to nominate it for Game of the Year, I'm not going to name it nominate it necessarily for a game award other than inventive gameplay unique gameplay mechanics right because that's what they were going well i assume that's what they were going for to me the fact that the rest of the game is passable is okay like it doesn't have to be amazing incredible or totally change the formula because they totally revolutionized how i even think about movement in video games and i want to see more games like this i don't need every game to try and nail every single aspect of the game if they do one thing super 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 well and super inventive and very new in a way that works and they make everything else work <laughs> at the very least like okay good um then yeah i'm i'm totally going to be good i'm gonna like that game i'm gonna want to talk about that game and i'm going to invite other people to play that game to experience it for themselves and really i think games like this are really some of the best games uh, for discussion because of the dichotomy between its high points and its low points. Like, you know, we didn't like the story. Uh, there's a lot of stuff about the actual gameplay that have issues and are uninspired. And yet we wanted to dedicate an entire hour at least to discussing this game and just how intriguing it is. And at the end of the day, the, the thought provoked um, how thought-provoking it can be with just thinking about, you know, this whole new world that they have created, this idea of salt, and that you, a person in this world, can literally take your hands and shape the world around you. Like, there's not many games or stories that have had that kind of idea and, and presenting that to the player and having you in that world where that is what is happening is just such such a breath of fresh air um but with that i think we've kind of exhausted the main gameplay we could talk about enemies and whatnot but i don't think uh we want to get that in depth with this uh especially because most of the most of the enemies are pretty much you know they either shoot at you or jump at you and, and that's about it um some of them are harder than others but most of them are variations on a theme uh so let's get into the world design itself 
the actual like how this world is put together if you look at a map you will see that this is actually a uh it's a pretty small game yeah um but when you're playing it it doesn't feel small and and we want to talk a little bit about how they manage that and uh how the world kind of works in spite of it feeling a little too disjointed yeah so i will say when i'm (laughs) as soon as we pulled up the map i was actually really shocked i'm like really is that it is that really the whole map um and it is the thing is is that if you look at the map you'll see areas that there are just door after door after door right next to each other and so a lot of these areas the rooms themselves are actually a lot bigger than they look like on the map. And when you're playing the game, the map doesn't show you all the platforms and all the things you have to do to get from one door to the other, or how one side of the room is completely cut off and you have to backtrack all the way through four other, four other rooms to get to where you need to go. Which pros and cons to that kind of design. On the one hand, it's great to have long loops so that you don't just have someone flip-flopping back and forth. But on the other hand, if someone gets lost and you haven't given them clear enough direction, which is kind of the antithesis of a Metroidvania, it can become very tedious uh, in a slog to navigate through the world. Yeah, if you're just hitting dead end after dead end, which is something I did encounter sometimes in this game. Um, not a whole lot, but but enough that it did become annoying sometimes. But in essence... What I'm getting at is that the fact that you go through each room so many different times in your journey makes the map feel a lot bigger, even though it is actually only, you know, four whole areas and each area only has maybe 20 rooms in it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's actually interesting because the the way the world is designed, there are essentially one, two, three, four, five, six, if we're being generous, Mm -hmm. distinct sections um there is the forested section there is the futuristic section there's the desert section there's the dreamscape section yeah, the mind trip <laughs> <laughs> there's the kind of I, I don't know how to call it it's like the city section but ancient city section uh and there's the evil base section yeah uh and each of these sections, when you look at it on a map, are pretty small and very self-contained. Uh, and there's only one or two ways to get in or out of any of these given uh, areas, which is generally in a Metroidvania, you want things to be a little bit more interconnected, uh, just so that the flow of the game, especially later on, isn't destroyed. Because the hope is that at the end of the game, after you've unlocked all these abilities, the player will go back and try to get all these upgrades that they couldn't get before because they'll be like oh this ability lets me open this gate and i remember in the first level there was this gate that i couldn't get through now i know how to deal with it um with only two ways in and out of any area uh it becomes a little bit more tedious than enjoyable to transition but at the end of the day this map when you're playing the game feels enormous but not in a bad way it feels like this big world you're living in. But then when you're done, you're like, whoa, that was, uh, that's like a quarter of what I thought it was. It's mm-hmm. like, you know, this tiny section. But that's everything. If you play the game now, it has a free, uh, it, it's, I think there's a new 
version called like Tears for Fears or something like that, <laughs> which also might be a band or a song it is a or something band. like that. It's a band. <laughs> uh, which has greatly expanded the interconnectivity and the map size. Uh, but that's not the version that we played or interacted with, so we can't speak to that. I did, actually. Trials of Fear edition. Trials of Fear. That's the one that I played. I know, but you didn't interact with any of those things. Yeah, no. So, <laughs> it's, it's yeah, not... there's a whole other layout map thing, but obviously we can't, can't speak to that because uh, neither of us used it. Yeah. Uh, and so the world itself, I mean, it's cohesive in that everything seems tied together by the salt. But at the same time, each area is so distinctive, it feels like they kind of built them out individually and then threw them together. In a really good Metroidvania, you want it to feel like everything flows and that the entire thing was built with each other in mind. That is very difficult. Yeah, I was going to say, admittedly, you know, even Metroid games I've played have struggled with this in, in feeling super cohesive. Uh, it's just hard. And, and as a game dev, you know, if you have a really good idea... You don't want to necessarily throw it out just because you don't feel like it fits in. Um, so I, I understand, you know, kind of what they were doing, especially for an indie dev, you know, who are probably on a pretty tight budget and timeline. But the world in of itself, you will play through it and you'll be like, this is such an interesting world to go through. And I think part of that is just because the entire world is a puzzle for you to unlock because you have to figure out how to get everywhere in a way that is not straightforward and it just the fact that you're utilizing your brain in such a higher capacity than usual just for traversal is a fantastic experience i mean even platformers for the most part allow you to just walk and run during large sections of the game that is just non-existent here uh, and that really lends itself to even in a, a fairly bog standard world just making that world feel more alive and more interesting. I don't mean to beat a dead horse here, but the things we've been talking about just make me more sad that there isn't more of a story to this game. Because I feel like there's so much they could have done to flesh out, like, it could have felt more cohesive had they explained, like, this is why the forest has a city on one side of it and a completely futuristic, you know, tech place on the other side of it. Had there just been a few other threads to follow about why this world is the way it is, even pre, you know, oppression, um, I just feel like it would have been a lot more interesting of a world and, and felt a lot more together than it does as it stands right now. Yeah, you can make a world feel more cohesive by adding in just a little bit, some breadcrumbs, mm -hmm. some things that you don't have to explain to me why there's this futuristic city right below this ancient Mesopotamian city. Mm -hmm. As long as you give me the idea of, oh, perhaps this ancient city, you know, was used as a defense against people invading, and it's the true city is this, this futuristic one. It has a purpose. Or, or whatever. Give mm -hmm. me an idea. Don't explain it to me, but make me think. And suddenly your world feels that much more alive and that much more realistic as opposed to why are they next to each other? And I don't know. Yeah. And the same thing, you know, this is also how I felt during the bosses uh, is that I don't <laughs> understand why I was fighting the things I was fighting. I'm like, all right, I'm fighting what appears to be a cross between Thanos and Simone Bolivar. 
why? Like, I, I don't have no idea who that is. <laughs> it's a dictator in South America. <laughs> anyway, um, oh, oh, I got you. Now. Yeah, right. Just a giant purple floating military head, head <laughs> a giant heart. Um, you know, really, the the final boss is the only one that has even a little bit of. Oh yeah, I get it. I understand what I'm fighting, and I know how he connects to this world. But even then, it's a little weird. The 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 second phase of the final boss is feels cohesive the first phase not so much yeah and also where you fight him it's like why is this here Uh uh-huh it's just kind of random like a yeah like you literally get to the end you've been in this evil base you've been going through all these different things you get to the very end and suddenly it's like you're at a theater there's these Mm -hmm. lights that turn on and you're moving around and then you meet the person who is just this tv and you literally fight a giant TV for the first part, and it's like, why? There's never been a TV in this game before, and now suddenly I'm fighting a TV? And I realize it's probably just more extended metaphors about the the historical figure, Dandara, that this game is based on. But, you know, when the rest of the game is a lot more elevated, like, it's not so clearly tied... Um, when there are these things that seem like they could be pretty more directly tied to maybe actual events or really specific things going on at that period of history, it, it's pretty off-putting. It, it's just weird. Um, it just doesn't seem to fit in the world that they've created. Well, it's one of those things where perhaps the bosses, the idea is, oh, these are actual events in this person's life or tied to the conflict. We have no idea. Now, perhaps... The conflict and the character that is being portrayed is far more knowledgeable in Brazil. People know about it, and they're going to see those illusions and just understand it like that. Not the case for us, but even if that was the case, generally you want to have a little additional direction to ensure that people are understanding what you're trying to push. I mean, there... If you want a good illusion, you don't need to point at it and say, you know, oh, see, this is reflecting this in real life. But you do need to give me a name or some kind of breadcrumb trail again to lead me to understand. If it just it's there and it's like, oh, it's a TV. And it's like, oh, I'm supposed to understand that this is the war where media was trying to vilify her and she's fighting against that. It's like. I could only possibly know that if I was really interested in her history. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's just things like that. Obviously, I'm not saying that this is like a deal breaker or anything or that I hate the bosses. Um, oh, and a lot of bosses are not tied together in other games. But it is just one of those things that of all the things in the world that feel cohesion breaking, the bosses are the biggest thing. Because totally. they pop out of nowhere. You don't feel like there's any reason for them to be there except... They wanted bosses. Except for the final boss, he feels like, yeah, I mean, I've been going, I knew I had to fight the final guy, but these other people, you go into an area, and then you leave the area, and suddenly there's a giant purple floating head, and they're like, Dandara, I'm going to kill you. And it's like, man, how did you even know about me? I was (laughs) born an hour ago from (laughs) salt. Like, thank you for reminding me of my name. I even forgot. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So yeah, world design, I mean, it's hit or miss. The, the smaller components, level to level, fantastic. The world design overall, bit disassociative. 
uh, and and the bosses that you deal with and the people you talk with like have nothing to do with anything. Yeah. Um. So at, at from a gameplay perspective, great. From a world building, from a story perspective, I was just not there. It's just, yeah. It was non-existent. Yeah. Um. Which maybe you don't care about that, and that's perfectly fine. But for us, uh, it's a it's a big disappointment. Yeah. Uh. So last couple of things to talk about art wise. Um, it, it is very well made. The art is all pixel art. Uh, very beautiful. Um, the bosses in particular, they're very large. They're very intricate, highly detailed. They look fantastic. Uh, the regular scenery also looks fantastic, but it's much simpler. Yeah, as much as we've talked about the areas feeling disjointed, that's just in a world building and, and map design um, uh, dimension. Yeah, yeah. As for, like, actually feeling like distinct areas, it, it's perfect. It, it's really, really good. Um, you will never get confused about where you are because of the background going on. Like, the futuristic tech city always feels that way. The forest is completely distinct. The desert city is completely distinct. Uh, the only place that's not that way is the dreamscape, and it's supposed to be that way. It's supposed so, to be a bit confusing. Yeah. Um. So as far as that goes, I, I, I really enjoyed playing the game aesthetically. I thought it looked pretty great, and it was... You know, every every area felt very distinct and well put together. As for music and sound design, um, I honestly don't remember the music, so was not that impactful. Uh, that's not to say that it was bad, but I personally generally remember game music really well because it's it's something from video games that I focus on. I really like music from video games. Uh, I have over a terabyte or um i have not over a terabyte over a hundred gigabytes a terabyte ah, that'd be a lot that would be a lot a hundred gigabytes of music and probably 70 to 80 percent of that is just video game soundtracks and affiliated music work because i really like to listen to video game music so if i can't remember the kind of music in a game it's indicative at least to me that it wasn't particularly memorable or great obviously i was we were streaming the game well i was streaming the game um so obviously i had it pretty low and i couldn't hear it super well but from what i do remember i think it was more ambient music which i also tend to not remember as much um that it wasn't super hard rocking you know super techno it was just kind of in the background and i remember the sound effects a lot more clearly I can hear Dandara shooting the salt missiles out of her hand in my head right now because it just has a really satisfying, like, snap to it when you shoot. Yeah, the, the actual sound design of sound effects, all fantastic, very distinctive, uh, easy to pick out, and you can even, if uh, you have the sound on, you can kind of glean information of what is off screen. Um, but... In the end, it's, it's passable. There's nothing particularly fantastic about it, nothing particularly bad about it. Yeah. Uh, it just is. And with that, that's kind of the entirety of Dandara, uh, at least that we have experienced. Perhaps you have experienced the new addition with the additional content. Uh, and if you want to talk to us about that, if you want to have us talk about that, let us know, uh, and, and we'll look more into it. But before we, before we plug that stuff, I just want to finish off by saying that while this is a short, independent um, game that doesn't it doesn't have an abundance of new and innovative ideas, the core conceit 
that it bases itself upon is such an interesting and thought-provoking methodology that I really think everyone who has interest in video games and video game design should experience this at least one time and kind of get you to realize that if you if you implement it correctly you can get people to latch on to ideas that seem like they are the antithesis of fun telling someone without having experienced the game oh you can't move you have to jump from wall to wall and the rooms are going to rotate around you so that you're always oriented a specific way like that sounds confusing and not a good time but when you play it and you get into that zen mode yeah i i would agree with that i definitely say i realize this is really niche but if you happen to be a game dev listening to this podcast and you are trying to get inspiration for a more imaginative way to actually have your gameplay give it a shot um derive some inspiration from things that have been done before and see what this game sparks inside of your own mind uh, i think it is very worthwhile to play it i realize that we've talked about a lot of negatives or at least you know not things that really stand out of, yeah mediocrities in the game but you know the one thing it does well it does very very well and it's worth experiencing if it at all interests you that being said we really appreciate you coming and listening to our podcast and we'd love to hear your feedback if we messed anything up which surely we did please let us know what? Imperfection in mere mortals? Unheard of. <laughs> and if there's anything you want to hear us talk about more about this game or in the future, uh, let us know. You can send us an email at reflectionsongaming at gmail.com. You can tweet at us at reflectongaming. And you can always find us on Instagram or Facebook under the name Reflections on Gaming. And just a quick plug specific to this podcast. If you happen to listen to our previous podcast where we discussed board games, um, I just want to say that we don't generally talk about board games or games in a physical media. We generally focus on video games and sometimes the pop culture that uh, arises from video games. Um, if you are someone who is expecting or wanting more board games, let us know. Uh, and we might talk about it more because board games is another passion that we have. But just wanted to make sure people understood that we do generally focus on video games uh, and kind of everything surrounding them. Yeah. Yeah, no, for sure. We are very amiable to, to suggestions for future topics. We have a lot of things on our mind. We have a lot of things to talk about. We will never run out of games to talk about. And honestly, taking a week to play a board game and dissect it in depth, if that's something that you want to hear, we will do it because we have nothing against that. We think it would be a good time anyway. Yeah, I think that's it for us. So thanks for listening. We hope that you continue listening and follow us on Instagram, Facebook, all that good stuff so you know when the next podcast is coming up and when our Twitch streams are going to be happening. Uh, we're going to be continuing our series dissecting Jack and Daxter soon, and we're going to be playing the third game there. So if you enjoy watching people play video games and making complete fools of themselves, man, do we have a show for you. Oh, yeah. <laughs> the last thing I'll say is that if any of you listening to this podcast right now are part of the many, many people that have followed us on Instagram this week, thank you so much. We are 
shocked by the growth that we've seen this week and we really hope that you enjoy the content that you're hearing and seeing on twitch and seriously if there's anything you want to see from us let us know because we want to cater to our our viewers and if we can call them that our fans when they're when they're there so thank you have a great week we will see you soon bye